another end of the world is possible. Practicing the Yoga of Despair. On October 5th, 2018, a painting of Girl with Balloon by anonymous street artist and activist Banksy was sold at Southby's for over a million English pounds. Seconds after the gavel ended the auction, a shredder, which had been hidden in the frame, was triggered, which destroyed the bottom hall, uh, bottom half of the painting. The little girl in the painting disappeared, and all that was left intact was her red-hearted, red heart-shaped balloon. We can debate what Banksy intended by the act that turned a painting into a piece of performance art or whether it was a cynical ploy to drive up the price of the painting. But I couldn't help seeing it as an omen, a message about the end of hope. Bensky's depiction of the girl with the red balloon had already gone viral before the Southeast auction. The painting is often interpreted as an expression of hope and is sometimes accompanied with the phrase, there is always hope. Looking at the shredded image of the little girl and the lonely balloon rising, it made me think of human extinction caused by rising air temperatures and the fact that the destruction was triggered by the fall of the auctioneer's gavel suggested the ultimate cause of this destruction, capitalism. A few days later, a UN report came out that made this interpretation seem prescient. You have permission to freak out. On October 8th, 2018, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change published a report that concluded that the Paris Climate Accord goals were too modest. Two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels is no longer considered a safe upper limit. We now need to stay under one and a half degrees Celsius. The problem is we're already at one degree Celsius and we're not even on track to stay under the earlier two degree target. Right now, we're staring down the barrel of four degrees Celsius. Parentheses for a time frame for a frame of reference, four degrees Celsius is the difference between now and the last ice age. Unparentheses. And according to the IPCC report, we now have only 12 years to cut emissions by 45%, and until 2050 to cut 100%. The tone of the headlines reflected the serious nature of the report's findings. Washington Post: The world has just over a decade to get climate change under control. UN scientists say. New York Times, major climate report describes a strong risk of crisis as early as 2040. CNN, planet has only until 2030 to stem catastrophic climate change, experts warn. And the BBC News, final call to save the world from climate catastrophe. The Guardian, we have 12 years to limit climate change catastrophe, warns UN. And the Smithsonian, the world has just was just issued... 12-year ultimatum on climate change. Cutting emissions to this degree, says the report, will require, quote, rapid, far-reaching, and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society, unquote. What's more, quote, there is no historical precedent for the scale of the necessary transitions, unquote. David Wallace-Wells summarized what is what far-reaching and unprecedented changes, quote-unquote, would look like a complete rebuilding of the entire energy infrastructure of the world, a thorough reworking of agricultural practices and diet to entirely eliminate carbon emissions from farming, and a battery of cultural changes to the way that those of us in the wealthy West, at least, conduct our lives. Unquote. 
And some scientists are saying that this is the conservative view of things. Wallace Wells summed up the news with this succinct notice. You now have permission to freak out. Brought to you by Cole. Does anybody actually think that we're going to see historically unprecedented change in the next 12 years? We've known about the threat of anthropogenic climate change for 30 years, and we've been warned about the limits to growth for even longer. And none of, nothing has changed. In fact, we're headed in the opposite direction. 2018 is now expected to hit an all-time high for carbon emissions. I am forced to agree with Dave Levitin. Uh, quote, if we're going to solve climate change, you would have solved. If, if we were going to cli solve climate change, we would have solved climate change, unquote. The media is obsessed with the Republicans' denialism, but that's increasingly looking like a distraction. Just a few months before the IPCC report, the Trump administration released a report that cynically used a three and a half degrees Celsius hotter future as a given to justify not taking action to improve fuel economy standards, essentially saying it would be too little too late. Not long after, as the world's as the worst wildfire on record raged in California, the Trump administration released the U.S. National Climate Assessment, which predicted global temperature increases between 2 and 5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. The report was released on Black Friday, apparently in the hope that most people would be too busy shopping to read the news. They were. Meanwhile, investors are seeing climate change as an opportunity to cash in. As I'm writing this, a reporter is contacting me for a comment on the UN Climate Summit in Poland, which is being sponsored by a coal company. If only scientists would invent the tree. My prediction for our future is this. Capitalism will keep doing what it does until there's nothing left. In addition to higher temperatures and rising seas over the next 80 years, we can expect increasing drought, soil degradation, and food and water scarcity, mass migrations at the speed of, and the speed of diseases, the more wildfires, superstorms, and floods. This isn't some crackpot and end times raving. This is the mainstream view. Correspondingly, we can expect increasing economic disparity, expanding ethnic and racial conflict, the continuing rise of charismatic demagogues, increasingly overt forms of corporate slavery, and the collapse of governmental and social institutions. I'm going to read that again. My prediction for our future is this. Capitalism will keep doing what it does until there's nothing left. In addition to higher temperatures and rising seas, over the next 80 years, we can expect increased drought, soil degradation, and food and water scarcity, mass migration and the spread of diseases, and more wildfires, superstorms, and floods. This isn't some crackpot end, of the end times raving. This is the mainstream view. Correspondingly, we can expect increasing economic disparity, expanding ethnic and racial conflict, the continuing rise of charismatic demagogues, increasingly overt forms of corporate slavery, and the collapse of governmental and social institutions. Throughout all this, people will keep praying for some technofix, like a machine that will suck carbon out of the atmosphere, as if nobody has ever heard of a tree. Quote, A simple machine needing no fuel and little maintenance, one that steadily sequesters carbon, enriches the soil, cools the ground, scrubs the air, and scales easily to any size. 
a tech that copies itself and even drops food for, for free. A device so beautiful, it's the stuff of poems. Unquote. And while scientists are hard at work trying to invent the technological equivalent of a tree, the Amazon, the lungs of the planet, was just effectively sold to the timber industry in the last Brazilian election. No, I'm not looking to science to save us. It seems more likely that scientists will kill us with some harebrained geoengineering scheme. Uh, footnote, uh, that great quote on, you know, what a tree is, uh, was written by Richard Powers in The Overstory. Why we are not going to be saved. Here comes the boom of the end of your civilization, and you don't look pretty in your cool new jeans? Here comes what we get for a hundred years of privilege squandered, and nothing done to educate our children to save the planet. Here comes the Cabriolet edition of capitalism and the end of an empire you are too conceited to even protect. Here comes the rising tide. Here comes the Middle East. Here comes the weather. Here comes everybody. Robert Montgomery. Not to put too fine a point on it, but I think we're doomed. The reasons we have less to, the reasons why have less to do with parts per million or degrees centigrade than they do with human psychology and culture. Say this again. Not to put too fine a point on it, but I think we're doomed. The reasons why have less to do with parts per million or degrees centigrade than they do with human psychology and culture. And then he has eight bullet points. Bullet point number one. Unlike wars, climate change does not present us with an easily identifiable enemy whom we can other. As Pogo said, the enemy is us. Next bullet point. We don't want to question the illogic of growth on a finite planet. To paraphrase Upton Sinclair, it's difficult to get a person to understand something when their whole way of life depends on not understanding it. Third bullet point, neoliberalism has succeeded in convincing most people that, in the words of Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative. Fourth bullet point, we are unlikely to change until crisis forces us to, but the nature of climate change is that, it's, that the effects of our actions today are baked, quote-unquote, into the Earth's climatic system and don't manifest for a decade or more, by which time it will be too late. Next bullet point, Capitalism has proven to be immensely resilient and able to absorb dissent and capitalize, pun intended, on its own failures. Next bullet point. Our democratic system of government is structured to discourage rapid change and encourage compromise. We have the luxury of neither now. Next bullet point. The very solutions we cook up have a way of making the problem worse because we are still operating from, the, from within the same level of alienated consciousness that created the problem. Final bullet point. As eco-theologian Thomas Berry has said, quote, we will not save what we do not love, unquote. And I do not think most people love wild nature. Most people dismiss it or hate it or fear it. Nature bats last. No new technology is going to save us. Not renewable energy, not nuclear energy, and not carbon capture. No political party is going to save us either. Not the Democratic Party, not the Democratic Socialists, and not the Green Party. And certainly, no tweaking of our existing economic system is going to save us. Not a carbon tax, and not even a Green New Deal. The activists aren't going to save us either. Witness 
mainstream climate activists, among whom I was one until recently, who naively advocate for a transition to renewable energy without advocating for a corresponding cut in consumption, or talking about what that would really mean, an economic contraction that would make the Great Depression look like, a halcyon, look like halcyon days. The problem is that very few people seem to want to talk about the real cause of climate catastrophe, capitalism and the dominant cultural myth in the West, progress. In a way, mainstream climate activists aren't that different from industrial capitalists. Both think that we can still have our cake and eat it too. Both seem to be driven by an unquestioned faith in human progress. The belief that human beings are destined to forever keep expanding our dominance over nature. What's more, both climate activists and the fossil fuel industry accept an adversarial attitude toward nature. Consider the responses, the response of many activists who, when faced with the futility of the, of the policy changes that they're promoting, say that we should, quote, go down fighting, unquote. But what if the problem is the whole notion of fighting? We've been trying to fight nature at least since the scientific revolution, maybe since the invention of agriculture, and we now see that, that where that attitude has gotten us. From this angle, the fight, quote-unquote, against climate change starts to look indistinguishable from the war being waged on nature by human civilization. What Guy McPherson has written about the Climate Action Group Extinction Rebellion applies to a lot of climate activism. Quote, Because nature always bats last, and also because nature always gets her way, a human rebellion at this late date hasn't got a chance at preventing or slowing down human extinction. Even if we did have the means and fortitude to rebel, I don't know how we can meaningfully rebel and against what. After all, our several thousand-year-old rebellion against nature in the form of civilization is precisely the route by which we found ourselves peering into the abyss of extinction. Die early and often. It turns out that there's lots of people who have been thinking the same thing. There's a whole community out there proselytizing the near-term extinction of the human species. I probably disagree with a lot of them about what near-term means. I have more faith in the resilience of capitalism than many of them do. But there's a lot of the planet for capitalism to consume before it's done. But since arriving at the conclusion that we're doomed, I've been much more interested in the question, so what do we do now? Um, I'm going to read two footnotes. uh, Footnote 10 uh, which right after he, he might disagree about what near-term means, it says, the resemblance of some near-termers to Christian end-timers in their enthusiasm for catastrophe is disturbing. While I do not want global industrial capitalism, well, I do want global industrial capitalism to collapse, I don't want billions of people to suffer more and die, and I don't want the human species to go extinct. And then footnote 11, which came at the end of there's lots on the planet for capitalism to consume before it's done. Though I'm not ruling out the possibility of rapid collapse, I find John Michael Greer's prediction of a couple of centuries of gradual decline, having started already in the 1970s, to be the most reasonable scenario. Don't be lulled into believing that we have generations to change things, though. We are the last generation that could have stopped climate change. So again, Patrick Farnsworth's question, what is climate change asking of us? Or, to put it differently, as individuals... And as a species, what is the earth calling us to? Patrick uh, surmises, and I agree, that fighting to the bitter end is not the answer to that question. My tentative answer is 
die early and often. To die early means to confront our death while we're alive, not just our individual deaths, but also the death of our civilization and the death of the human species, among countless more species. We also need to confront the death of our myths, especially the myth of progress and the myth of the individual. And then he has a footnote, long paragraph footnote. Only a new myth can replace, only a new myth can replace an old myth. The myth of human progress is a variation, is a version of the ancient patriarchal solar hero myth in which the god hero must slay the monster, representing mother or nature, in order to transcend chaos and death and achieve mastery and immortality. But there is a counter myth in which death is not something to be overcome, but something to be surrendered to in order that the cycle of life may go on. The goal of the hero in the counter myth is not domination, but partnership. Not transcendence, but participation. And the only monster that must be slain is our own self-centeredness, our own ego. Examples of these two uh, metamyths can be found woven throughout the world's religions, both ancient and modern. See Jules Cashford and Anne Baring, The Myth of the Goddess, Evolution of an Image, and Joseph Campbell, A Hero with a Thousand Faces. So again, to die early means to confront our death while we're alive, not just our individual deaths, but also the death of our civilization and the death of the human species, among countless more species. We also need to confront the death of our myths, our worldviews, especially the death of the myth of progress and the myth of the individual. To die often means to discover and to create rituals and myths, old and new, which will help us to confront death. Some parts of contemporary neo-paganism may be able to help us learn to die well. Quote, we need to be intimately acquainted with death, as there are rites over which our witchcraft presides, not some nudist holiday camp capers predicting, uh, predict, predicated on the glut of cheap oil. For witchcraft to be anything other than an empty escapism of the socially dysfunctional, it needs to feel the shape of its skull, venerate the dead, and the sacred art of living and dying with meaning. We need to offer the death rites in a culture that pretends that death can be cheated. Unquote. That was from Peter Gray, Rewilding Witchcraft. The Sin of Despair But talking about death is a big no-no in environmental circles, not to mention our wider culture. There is an incredible amount of resistance within the climate movement to any message that might provoke despair. In fact, some climate scientists have been encouraged to soft-pedal their findings due to the fear that if the hard truth about climate change were widely known, people would just give up. Despair is a cardinal sin among climate activists. Activists, I include myself here, resort to all sorts of strategies for avoiding acknowledging how hopeless our situation really is. Denial. Climate, climate activists have our own form of denial. We don't deny that climate change is happening, but we deny what it means the inevitable death of human civilization and possibly the human species. Anger. Plenty of justifiable anger is on display in climate demonstrations, usually directed at the fossil fuel industry or policymakers. But I wonder how much of our anger is a cover, a way of avoiding our own complicity, and a way of staving off a creeping feeling of despair. Bargaining. The idea that we can replace fossil fuels with renewable energy without a corresponding decrease in human consumption is a form of bargaining, and many climate activists, myself included, are guilty of it. All of these strategies are employed to avoid despair. But eventually, some of us work through these stages of grief and arrive at depression, 
we despair. The yoga of despair. Quote from Peter Gray, Rewilding Witchcraft. Some will be afraid of this knowledge. Witchcraft should be liberated by it. Liberated from petty concerns to pursue lives of beauty. Liberated from the sleepwalking into death that our culture has made for us and our children. So I counsel, confront death. As someone who has been going through the process, through this process, I can tell you despair isn't as bad as it seems from the other side. For one thing, there's a kind of clarity that comes with despair. A sense of peace settles. Priorities come into focus. And strangely, a new feeling of power emerges out of surrender. Not the power over nature, with which we are so familiar, but rather the power with nature. I'm going to say it again. As someone who's gone through this process, I can tell you despair isn't as bad as it seems from the other side. For one thing, there's a kind of clarity that comes with despair. A sense of peace settles. Priorities come into focus. And strangely, a new feeling of power emerges out of surrender. Not the power over nature, with which we are so familiar, but rather power with nature. Father Bede Griffiths says despair is a yoga. A yoga, in this sense, means a path or a method of enlightenment or awareness. The idea of despair as a path to enlightenment is pretty foreign to most people in the West. Most activists equate despair with paralysis. People avoid it, suppress it, medicate it. But there is a wisdom to be found in despair. Imagine a patient who has been given a terminal diagnosis. There are many ways a person might respond to the news. They may pass through some or all of the stages of grief. They may search desperately for miracle cures, or they may despair. They may give up hope of survival. But some of those who give up may discover a new peace. They may decide that they want to live more meaningfully and intensely with the life that they still have left. They may decide to focus on healing their relationships with others and fostering new ones. They may devote their time and resources to creating a legacy for the next generation. We've been given a terminal diagnosis for our civilization, and quite possibly our species. As Peter Gray has written, quote, The inevitability of our physical deaths is now being played out on a planetary scale, unquote. Despair is a natural response to this news. But despair is not something to be avoided. Despair is a teacher. Despair teaches us about our limitations. Despair teaches us where we belong. Despair teaches us what matters most. Despair teaches us how to live. I'm going to say it again. As Peter Gray has written, oh, so we have been given a terminal diagnosis for our civilization and quite possibly for our species. As Peter Gray has written, the inevitability of our physical deaths is now being played out on a planetary scale. Unquote. Despair is a natural response to this news, but despair is not something to be avoided. Despair is a teacher. Despair teaches us about our limitations. Despair teaches us where we belong. Despair teaches us what matters most. Despair teaches us how to live. Sean Chamberlain's experience of despair, which he writes about on his blog, Dark Optimism, is illustrative. Quote, The harsh truth is that I cannot save nature and or humanity from the ongoing devastation, though I could burn myself out trying, and facing that reality hurts. But beyond agony, joy. I sit with that pain and its attendant tears and rage. I refuse to run away from it or to distract myself with entertainment or with frantic work. And I find that it does not end me. 
Eventually, I come out the other side, somehow empowered, somehow empowered. The psychic energy that I have been using to suppress that fear and despair is released, and I look to the world with fresh eyes. Okay, I breathe. Here I am, in a dying world. It's on the same dying world I lived in yesterday, but today I see it for what it is. What now? All right, so that's a great quote. I'm going to read it again from Sean Chamberlain. Audio editor's note, Michael Dowd speaking. Sean Chamberlain was the first uh, video that was posted in the post-Doom conversation series, and uh, it's fabulous. Uh, So definitely check it out if you've not uh, seen that yet. Postdoom.com. And then uh, you'll find the playlist. Sean Chamberlain's experience of despair, which he writes about on his blog, Dark Optimism, is illustrative. Quote, The harsh truth is that I cannot save nature and or humanity from the ongoing devastation, though I could burn myself out trying, and facing that reality hurts. But beyond agony, joy. I sit with that pain and its attendant tears and rage. I refuse to run from it or to distract myself with entertainment or with frantic work. And I find that it does not end me. Eventually, I come out the other side, somehow empowered, The psychic energy I've been using to suppress that fear and despair is released, and I look at the world with fresh eyes. Okay, I breathe. Here I am, in a dying world. It's the same dying world I lived in yesterday, but today I see it for what it is. What now? And this time, the question feels less desperate, less anxious. What story do I want to tell with this day, with this life? The question is suddenly filled with possibilities. The knowledge that we are all going to die becomes liberating rather than oppressive. And then maybe, yes, I decide to spend my time trying to preserve dying species, to right injustices, to create more wonder and joy, maybe even to work for reform or revolution. Maybe those are the stories I want my life to tell. But now it comes from such a different energy, from a deeper wellspring. Maybe that new energy will bring in other stories, other possibilities. But certainly it banishes the sense of desperate obligation, the futility and frustration, and leaves the simple expression of who and what I am. There is no fear of burnout, for now I am doing and being exactly what I choose at every moment. No, the impossible struggle toward toward sustainability is not what I am here to do. But for now, maybe it is what the thing that I'm here to do looks like from the outside, unquote. And again, that whole long quote, about five paragraphs, was from Sean Chamberlain. Another end of the world is possible. Some people respond to the news of impending civilizational collapse and human extinction by asking exasperatedly, well, if you believe that, why don't you just kill yourself? I think it says a lot about us that we cannot imagine a meaningful existence without the belief in infinite human progress. While there are some circumstances in which suicide might be a rational and dignified response to a terminal diagnosis, there are other possibilities, other ends of the world that we might imagine. After all, there is still beauty and joy and love. Quote from Carl Sagan, The world is so exquisite with so much love and moral depth that there is no reason to deceive ourselves with pretty stories for which there's little good evidence. Far better, it seems to me, in our vulnerability, is to look death in the eye and to be grateful every day for the brief but magnificent opportunity that life provides. Unquote. 
In the final scene of a movie I recently saw, uh, which was Avengers, Age of Ultron, the robotic villain is confronted by one of the heroes, himself an android. As the sun sets in the background, the robot says, they're doomed, referring to humanity. Yes, responds the android thoughtfully, but a thing isn't beautiful because it lasts. Unquote. Indeed, I would argue that a thing is made even more beautiful by our awareness of its mortality. And from Troy, a 2004 film, the gods envy us. They envy us because we're mortal, because at any moment it might be our last. Everything is more beautiful because we're doomed. You will never be more beautiful than you are now. That quote was actually from Homer's Iliad. It was spoken by Brad Pitt in the movie Troy, as he was Achilles. Knowing that we will die can make us love the world even more. Say it again. Knowing that we will die can make us love the world even more. Knowing that our family and friends won't live forever can cause us to love them even more. And what do we do for the people we love? We try to lessen their suffering. We try to deepen our connections with them in the time that we have left. And we mourn when they are gone. What would it look like if we loved the earth that way? and the other than human beings who live here. For my own part, I have found a kind of peace in knowing that we're doomed and discovering that there is still a meaningful way to live. Say it again. What would it look like if we loved the earth that way and the other, other than human beings who live here? For my own part, I have found a kind of peace in knowing that we're doomed and discovering that there is still a meaningful way to live. I have realized that we can't save the planet, or the human species, or even human civilization, and I don't think I would want to if I could. If I, I have, I've had to let go of all that big picture stuff. Now I'm turning my attention away from nature, writ large, and the planet, writ large, to the place where I live, and to the beings, both human and other, with whom I interact with on a daily basis. I'm turning from my hopes for the future to the needs of the present, and I'm discovering that I love this place and these beings, especially the few wild plants, wild parts of it that remain. The Michigan Lakeshore, sandwiched though it is between a coal-fired power plant and a steel mill, with its dunes, forests, and wetlands, the milkweeds and wild lupines, which are native to this place, the cottontail rabbits who live under my patio and the red-shouldered hawks who stalk them, the silver maple I planted with my children when they were little, and my poor ash tree who is valiantly fighting to survive an ash borer infestation. I took my realizing that I was losing them. It took my realizing that I was losing them to, to realize how much I love them. Which brings me back to Thomas Berry's observation that, quote, we will not save what we do not love, unquote. Climate activism is, by necessity, focused on the global, the general, and yet love is always specific. We cannot love the earth because we cannot have a relationship with the earth any more than we can have a relationship with humankind. It's just too big. But we can love the place where we are and the places where we have been. Most of us cannot love the whales because most of us don't interact with them regularly. But we can love the species with whom we have direct relationships. After Hope. Quote from Richard Powers, The Overstory. 
Ovid tells the story of two immortals who came to earth in disguise to cleanse the sickened world. No one would let them in, but the but one old couple, Bacchus and Philemon. And their reward for opening their door to strangers was to live on after death as trees, an oak and a linden, huge and gracious and intertwined. I feel a little embarrassed to be ending this essay on such a sentimental theme as love. <laughs> but then, love and death have always been paired in the Western imagination. Eros and Thanatos, death and the maiden, the womb and the tomb, the ambiguous apple and the, in the Garden of Eden. So perhaps it's not so strange that death should lead us to love. The Overstory by Richard Powers is a story about love and death and trees. The novel interweaves the stories of nine very different human beings and the trees with whom they develop relationships. The trees are as much the characters in the Overstory as the human beings. Powers' aim is to try to decenter the human species, if only just a little bit. Powers has said that the Overstory was born out of his first encounter with a giant redwood, when the realization that humans are not destined to be the masters of this planet hit him with the force of a religious conversion, and he felt himself bound back into a system of meaning that doesn't begin and end with humans. It's worth noting that it was a specific redwood, not a professed love of trees or even redwoods, that triggered his transformation. I believe that it will take that kind of a revelation or conversion to really transform humankind's relationship with our home and with, our, with other species with whom we share it. What would happen if such a conversion took place on a mass scale? I wonder what love might be born in the hearts of humankind if we really believe that this is our end. Say it again. What would happen if such a conversion took place on a mass scale? Yeah, Michael, I'm looking at you. I wonder what love might be born in the hearts of humankind if we really believed that this is our end. Maybe we would fall in love with our home again. Maybe we would find our kin among the other, uh, uh, um, among the other beings of this place. Maybe we would, we would use our remaining time to try to save as many wild species and as wild places uh, as we could. Yeah, Connie, I'm looking at you. Maybe we would adopt a hospice mentality for our own species and try to lessen the suffering of other-than-human beings. Maybe we would form networks of human solidarity and multi-species mutual aid. Maybe we would cr create death rites for dead and dying species, including our own. None of this would save our world, but it might just save our souls. Or, to put it in a better way, it might just enable us to find our souls again. I frequently find myself asking, what will it take? What will it take for human beings to change? I think maybe it would take dying. What is a religious conversion, after all, if not a kind of death? I think maybe the only way we could really experience a conversion to a biocentric, ecocentric way of life is if we believed, if we really knew that we were going to die. Maybe radical love is only possible when we give up hope for ourselves. I'm thinking now that maybe the meaning of Bansky's shredded painting is a little different than what I first thought. Maybe what he was saying was, after hope, there is still love. <laughs>